Um, I'm the curator for the show that is um, currently in place in the gallery, and um, it features the work of David Leach. Um, David was born in Evanston? Yes. Evanston, Illinois. He got his bachelor's degree from Bucknell University, his master's degree from Ohio University. He taught for 30 years at Wright State, including um, one year as, um, it's, not, it's not chair. Um, four years as chair. Four years as chair and one year as, um, what's temporary? Interim. Interim. Sorry. His awards include a regional um, fellowship from the National Endowment for the Arts, and he his work is included in numerous collections, including Yale University and Museum of Modern Art in New York. Uh, it's been an honor and a privilege to uh, work on this exhibit, um, and I before I say anything else, I want to make sure that people turn off their cell phones. Um, I always forget to do that. Please do that. Um, we want to thank um, the um, Ohio Arts Council and um, Dean Charles Taylor and, and <laughs> Associate Dean Linda Karen, um, Glenn Sebulash, our chair, and the Department of Art and Art History as well as the Friends of the Gallery, very important. Um, so without any further ado, um, I would like to um, say that I'm very proud and honored to present to you David Leach. Please welcome David Leach. Thank you, Penny, um, and thank you to Wright State for hiring me in the first place. <laughs> not on a limb. Uh, I was very young when I started, and uh, I'd like to especially thank Penny, uh, Kim Vito. The two of them were the ones that drew the short straw for curating this show. They knew it was going to go back 40 years, and there was a lot of stuff to look at. And <clears throat> I would. Especially like to thank Tess Cortez, uh, the gallery coordinator, who mounted the show and who designed the catalog. This is the uh, first page image or the cover page of the catalog, and just did a wonderful job. Um, I'm going to be basically telling stories and mostly letting the slides tell the stories. Um, but it's, it is 40 years of work, so it is going to take some time. Uh, I apologize for perhaps uh, uh, making you sit in chairs a little bit longer, but I'm, I'm aiming at 45 minutes. I might go a little bit over that. And then after the uh, talk here, the reception, of course, is in the main gallery. And it'll become clear at the end of the talk, uh, there are four poets here. Uh, at Wright State, um, three retired like me and one who is still teaching here who are going to do a poetry reading in the gallery. So the reception will not only have 
uh, wine and food to eat, but uh, you'll be able to listen to some very good talks. <coughs> the, the early years, uh, oops, I need to put my glasses on. Um, I was involved as a printmaker uh, primarily with photo printmaking. I have a, a kind of a strange relationship with photography. I have to say that because I know there are a lot of true photographers out there in the audience, professional photographers. And the way I dealt with photography was through uh, photo print techniques. And photo print techniques obviously relate to uh, newspaper photographs and uh, photographs that you see published uh, in, in various ways, advertisement, uh, magazine, uh, and so forth. And there's something about the dock pattern. Remember, this is the old world of film, not digital. And uh, dock patterns to carry continuous tone. And another strange uh, aspect was that uh, I, I was going through a transition, just like, just like we all do. Um, those of you who are undergraduates here, you go through a transition when you go into graduate school. You, you get accepted for doing a certain kind of work, but when you arrive at the graduate school, of course you're expected to, to do something else, not to, just to continue what you've been doing. And uh, what I was looking for at that point was a very, very neutral style, uh, something that was almost style-less. Uh, I love to draw, and you'll see that as we get into uh, slides in the future, but in the uh, early 70s, I was, I was kind of backing away from drawing uh, and backing away from any media that had a stylistic trait, a very identifiable stylistic trait. Don't ask me exactly why, but that was the transition I was in. And I was interested uh, in images that, uh, like this image, uh, you can probably recognize the source of this image, but it's from a uh, boxcar, the side of a boxcar on a, on a freight line. And uh, the title of it is Information. And I was interested in just this layered information that gets scribbled over and obscured. And I thought it had something to do with the kind of communication or lack thereof that we have through language, through film, and uh, through photography. Uh, these are some early etchings. This is uh, when I was at Ohio University a very good print department and a very good photography department. A number of my colleagues were photographers at that point. There's layering and there's a kind of a scribbling mark that um, is something I was very interested in. Uh, in addition, uh, I was interested in architecture. I have a twin brother who is a uh, uh, was at the time an architect uh, with a large firm. He's now he's still an architect. Um, people ask me why I'm a printmaker. Well, I came in an addition of two. I'm one out of two. He's two. <laughs> <laughs> um, but in this transition time, I was, I was kind of anxious. I wasn't really, I, 
understanding what I what I really wanted to do. And the image, uh, this next image, is uh, a piece called Sink. And uh, what I did is my brother came to visit uh, my <clears throat> when I was in graduate school. Uh, went on a summer trip, and we looked at uh, this old, very pedestrian sink. And in the in the shop, and of course, it was pretty uh, grubby. <laughs> uh, and he did the elevations. He did the architectural elevations on the stone. I think it might have been my first stone lithograph. And <clears throat> I, I then filled in with the touche, uh, well, kind of a liquid wash technique in the medium, and uh, some scratch marks and so forth. But it was this kind of, what do I do next? Well, I've always been interested in architecture, uh, both uh, exterior and interior spaces. And this was a photo etching and a soft crown technique, a combination of plates uh, <clears throat> that emphasize line. And the image itself is really composed of line. Uh, it, it was a sculpture studio that had armatures you know, for the model and for building on. And uh, note in the, the horizontal line, which is just, just a, uh, a register uh, uh, heat supply, uh, is forming this kind of dotted line across the page. Um, and windows, uh, and what I call threshold, uh, which has been a long-lasting interest of mine, and an interest of lots of other artists, uh, also was, was what I was most interested at that, at that time. Uh, the image on the left is titled Screen, and it's literally a screen image, a screened image of a screen. Uh, but I like the kind of layering effect that these images presented, uh, almost like glazing techniques in, in uh, drawing and painting that I do later on. Um, <clears throat> and this next image has uh, works early works by Edwin Dickinson, who's uh, an artist that I wasn't really that aware of at that point in the, in the early 70s, but became aware of, especially after coming here. Um, Ernie Corlin, I think, was the first one to talk to me about uh, Edwin Dickinson's work, and particularly his drawings. Most of the artist's works that I'll be showing today are drawings and not paintings, even though the artists are known for painting. Um, but just a couple of images that uh, focus on windows. And those of you that know Dickinson's work, he uh, often would draw, looking at a window, at a, at a fairly distant scene, a landscape or other buildings in an urban setting. And yet you would see the fenestration of the window that he was looking through. So he's very connected to this inside-outside notion. Uh, more about that a little bit later. And then I came to Wright State in 1973, and I continued to work in uh, photo printmaking media. Um, <clears throat> the image, uh, such as the one on the upper left, has a combination of two, a lithograph, a drawn lithograph on the right, and a photo intaglio of a chair on the, uh, on the left. Uh, and those of you that get to uh, purchase a catalog, um, 
you'll, you'll want to read a marvelous essay that uh, my colleague Carol Nathanson did. Um, I'm very grateful for the work that she spent. She also draw, drew a short straw, <laughs> um, but she, a thorough investigation of this body of work. And uh, she talks and she uses this image in, uh, within the essay. Um, it's an image titled Broken Line, and I like the, the fact that it's, uh, it refers obviously to the optical phenomena of light refraction when you look at an object distorted through water. It, it disassembles. But uh, the, the term broken line also refers to, uh, particularly in graphic arts and graphic design, you know, when you're, when you're ruling with pen and the fluid runs out of your ruling pen and it breaks, that's, that's a mistake. And I kind of like the, the fact that I was uh, playing with the, <clears throat> the notion of imperfection. Uh, it kind of summarized my ideas about photography at the time. Uh, I, I was using photography as a means of abstraction. And sometimes that seems like, uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't seem obvious. Uh, people tend to think of photography as being more faithful uh, to nature, to whatever object is being photographed. And I, I sort of had, at that point, I, I still do have the opposite feeling that what it does with an image is to make a plan or a design out of it. Uh, it's monocular setting rather than uh, the two eyes that we have. Uh, makes it, uh, it, it transfers it into an image. And I'm using these two examples of uh, the work of Chuck Close. Uh, most, most of you that are familiar with art are familiar with his paintings and his prints. Chuck Close was his uh, I, I think equally important as a printmaker as he is as a painter. And in fact, I like his prints a lot better than his paintings, not because I'm a printmaker, but because there's a obvious source of breaking up those divisions, you know, those little panels that in his paintings he, he squirts some pigment into to create this photorealist image. Uh, but I think uh, th these are two images of his. I think that they're both woodcuts. Uh, the left-hand one is a little bit more like his paintings, but they are graphically are a distortion, really, from reality. And the one on the right is more like his current work. It's the same. It's an image of Alex Katz, as of you that know the painter Alex Katz. Uh, but it's a, uh, a means of abstraction. And I was also interested in combining photographic image or drawn image uh, with each other and also with a sculptural object that has a relationship to the images. In other words, like this photograph of an installation of chair three, chair three by itself, but without the object is in the exhibition, those of you that have seen it. But <clears throat> the objects were, were built to be flat, like low reliefs. So they did not vary that much from the image. And they were presented together like this. In fact, in this one you can see that the object is cropped exactly as the drawing is cropped. But I like the idea now, uh, this was this in the original, 
back in 76 or the mid-70s, was exhibited with, again, a flattened, low-relief sculptural object that had more of a pictorial uh, feeling than a sculptural feeling. And, but I like these. Uh, Carol wondered, well, are you, when you exhibit these images like this, are you going to include the object? And I said, no, I, I'm no longer interested uh, that much in the objects. And I, of course, I don't have all of the objects. Um, I have a lot of them, though, and they, they survive. But uh, I, I'm kind of a rev revisionist. You know, I like looking back, which is really the whole theme of this show, looking, looking back to the past and bringing the past into the present. Here you can get a little bit, the image on the left, uh, <clears throat> the corner studies, originally they were printed as separate images, one at a time, and these are two of the objects that are about photo size, and they would hang along with. And this is an example, Carol makes a reference to uh, my interface theory, theories of the late 70s, 1978 and 1979. And it's hard to, uh, I mean, the top three are the color photographs. The bottom is the actual object. Again, I still have that object, and I photographed it with this pencil so you get a sense of the scale. They're all about the same scale. Uh, so as one of my colleagues said uh, during an exhibition back in those days, oh, there's a lot of illusion here. But I'm actually more interested in allusion than illusion, and I'm also more interested in language. These are other examples. Um, uh, there, on the left is, is another iteration of Russell's table, and it, it's just singular, but you can sort of see what they look like in, as an installation piece. A photograph, and then on the right-hand side on the top is a black and white image. In other words, uh, the objects, I, I would get cheap uh, plastic free <laughs> from uh, stores, and I'd paint them either gray or white or black. So there's a knife painted white, there's a grayscale gray platform, and then there's these objects. So they become uh, photographic images. And a larger scale piece like this was uh, <clears throat> this piece that's uh, a table, an actual low-relief table, slightly askew perspective, and again, painted objects. The objects are painted in oil, and they're as painterly as I can get them. And then the photograph is simply a colored photograph of that setup. Working from the model, there were a couple of those. Okay. And then this, this period kind of ended with uh, concept, conceptual works. Uh, those of you that are not familiar with art, in the 1960s, uh, there was a movement uh, known as conceptual art. Uh, there, the, the idea was basically to uh, suggest that, that uh, rather than form an image, the most important thing that art conveys is the idea. And many of those artists, Joseph Kasuth being one of the major practitioners, uh, wound up exhibiting basically text. And I was influenced uh, by that art, particularly as an undergraduate. Um, and Joseph Kasuth in particular was interesting to me. When I started teaching here, uh, I was doing some master printing, some of you 
may remember that. I was doing master printing for artists. We would offer that them a set of prints as an honorarium. <coughs> and Kasuth was one. Did a text piece with him and with Vito Kanchi and other artists who were primarily not printmakers. Uh, but this group of work, uh, body work, uh, there were really only three major pieces, and they, they all occurred around this same year, 1981, 1982. Um, and they're, they're works that I still have a lot of feeling for. Um, Though there are lots of things that I wish I had done differently at the time, particularly the issue of scale. <laughs> there are huge pieces if you've seen the show. Uh, they should be book scale. I don't know what I was thinking. But I do want to take some time. Uh, this was the first piece, and it was an, entitled Indirect Quotes. And <clears throat> it has uh, five pages. The interior pages that you can probably see are labeled A, B, and C. They have fragments, quotes uh, from Wittgenstein, a well-known philosopher. And they're basically talking about uh, facts and things and objects and how do we, how do we identify what we see. Um, but the page one and page two, I'd like to take, to take just a little bit of time to read. Um, because that, that's sort of the essence of this piece. The first one is from a thesis written by a friend, a colleague of mine, who actually taught as an adjunct in the French department, uh, the, the late Rachel Sherman, Shelley Sherman. Uh, she did a thesis on Francis Ponge, uh, a poet uh, that uh, was interested in the poetry, was. Uh, interesting poetry to me, but I really like this this uh, phrase uh, that she used, that I captured or uh, appropriated from her thesis. Uh, we know from other texts that while writing, he often had the subject of his poetry <coughs> white carnations from the garden, etc., etc. Uh, so, along with his dictionary and alphabet. And I like the fact that, okay, it's got the basic ingredients right there. We add an occasional everyday object to his room. In this cramped poetic laboratory, he managed to create many of his texts. And I like the fact that Francis Ponge was one of the uh, writers, there are lots of them, Philip Roth is another one. They don't write uh, sitting down at a desk. You know, they write standing up. A sort of a platform desk. And <clears throat> there's something that, uh, about that that I really identified with, with how artists, or at least how I was functioning at that point. And then page five, the last page, I'm not gonna read the whole thing, but by now you've had a chance to read it. Uh, it's from a, quote, modern novel. Uh, the modern novel created this kind of anti-hero. Uh, a hero that didn't have the qualities that we have expected to see in literature up until the 20th century. And this artist, or this writer, uh, a writer named Robert Muzil, uh, had this phrase where he's looking for uh, a sense of reality. And this, this one line down here, which I will read, 
perhaps it can be put better by saying that the man with an ordinary sense of reality resembles a fish that nibbles at the hook and does not see the line. While the man with the kind of sense of reality that one can also call the sense of possibility pulls a line through the water without any notion whether there is a bait on it or not. I've always loved that line because I think it describes what a lot of us in the arts do. You know, we don't see the reward. You, you're just, you just can't help pulling that line. <laughs> and this piece, which was the middle piece of this trilogy, uh, is called Subtitles. Now, at, between undergraduate and graduate work, I spent some time at the Museum of Modern Art. I worked in their film department. Uh, I was basically shipping films out. <laughs> it was a very low-level job. Uh, in fact, I was probably shipping to schools like Wright State University because I was very interested in avant-garde film and uh, in the late 60s at Buffalo, the English, there was no film department there, but the English department had some very interesting uh, professors, instructors, and they would show uh, avant-garde, various types of avant-garde film. Jonas Mikas and uh, uh, Francis Ford Coppola, before he became really famous, was uh, pretty avant-garde. Uh, and at the modern, I was able to see as many films as I wanted to. Uh, I had, it was a great working situation. I could go see exhibitions at you know, the, the whole museum. But every Tuesday night, they had a program called Cineprobe. And it was, a, it was a night that was devoted particularly to uh, either avant-garde film or contemporary filmmakers, filmmakers that were not known. And I think it was during that time period, this would have been 69 uh, to 70, I saw, I probably saw for the first time uh, last year at Miriambad, uh, the, the famous film, it was a collaboration of Adam Roblier, uh, the French new novelist and nouveau romancier, and Alain René, a very well-known filmmaker. Now, even if you don't know René and Roblier, you probably are familiar with the name last year at Miriam Bed. Very confusing film. Uh, I can remember sitting in Center Prep and watching films, and what, what I was most interested in was the percentage of gray that, <laughs> that the film would evolve showing. And uh, the, the, this piece here is obviously film related, subtitles, right? And in fact, the, the print has subtitles dropped out, just like you would do in, in a film showing, and a sequence of images. And by now you've been staring at the slide long enough that you, you can see probably how it was manufactured, how the print was manufactured. Uh, the scale of this table, you know, I can hold in my hand. Uh, it's, it's a balsa wood table, and I, would, I fabricated four of them, photographed them, and then put them in front of these page-like structures. Uh, the background is simply a ruled line on a piece of tracing paper that was then transferred to a screen and made printable. And I like the ruled line because it suggests uh, not only a corner and a floor juncture, but perhaps an open book structure. And then the line, you can probably see how the, this, this single sentence poem of mine 
relates to the Robert Mazil quote in the earlier piece. And the final piece, uh, this one always makes Lori nervous because she doesn't like to see her head magnified. <laughs> I will say there are parts of it that are pretty scary. <clears throat> but this, this is the final piece, and uh, it sort of summarized uh, this, this first period of my being in right state. Um, and the, it, the, what I was interested in was this fabrication, this notion of fabrication, which all art is really involved with. But in this case, <clears throat> splicing images together and making, in fact, a single image, which I thought it was kind of a nice uh, metaphor for the, the process of being married. And uh, in the text is a poet poem that is composed of, again, appropriated text. Now, I always forget, well, not everyone here understands the notion of what, what do I mean by appropriated text. Uh, it, for a long time, but certainly in the, at, at around this time, in the late 70s, early 80s, the notion, not just a visual artist, but the notion of the found object uh, in, in literature was very, very prominent. Some, uh, all of you, I think, are familiar with Umberto Eco, the renowned semiologist, who all of a sudden decided he wanted to make novels. He wanted to write novels. And The Name of the Rose uh, was made into a film, and, and that's Umberto Eco. And I remember he was criticized at, at one point uh, by a literary critic who said, well, I, I don't know, the, the text just doesn't feel like it's from the Middle Ages. You know, kind of a harsh-sounding criticism. But Umberto Eco's response was, well, in fact, chapter three is actually an appropriated text from the Middle Ages. <laughs> so the idea, and Robillet and the other new novelists did this all the time, they would take previously printed material and they would uh, either fabricate a new poem or a new novel or a new short story. And uh, I, I kind of like that as it related to the found object. And the Spice poem, which is small enough that you, you can't read it, but I encourage you to, to uh, read it when, when you see the actual image. Uh, it's a combination of works, uh, writings by Harold Bloom, literary critic. Larry, you know Harold Bloom quite well. He's the one who says, you know, all great literature came from the Bible. <laughs> and, uh, and Mark Heidegger. And the indented text is Heidegger from Building, Dwelling, and Thinking. And it's a poem that focuses on breathing, what, what is a uh, weaving text together, how that relates linguistically, and it, there's etymology involved. You know, it's, it's just taking, starting with a word and defining where it comes from and its original meaning, something that Larry does all the time in his classes at Westminster. There are a lot of Westminsterites, there's a lot of Presbyterians in the room. <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> okay, there I think that's large enough that you can read it. Um, and you can see the Harold Bloom is on the left-hand margin, the Heidegger is on the right-hand margin, but when you read through it, uh, I think you get 
the notion of this, this splicing together. Uh, and the last thing I'll say about this piece, I'll, I'll tell you a little story and you can be reading the whole thing. It's, I, I think it's a very interesting text. But I, had, I think the first time this was ever shown was at Wright State University. And, I, and the show must have been in February. And Laurie was in the audience. And I remember making the comment that this was the biggest Valentine's Day card in captivity. <laughs> <laughs> At that point, I was, uh, I was getting a little bit antsy with where I was. And uh, I had a lot of success with these early works, the textual pieces, the combination pieces, the object image uh, pieces. Uh, but I, I thought it was becoming fairly narrowly defined, and, and I also thought that I was maybe becoming classified as a what was then called a post-studio artist, and <clears throat> I didn't I didn't like that. I, I I missed drawing, and I wanted to get my hand back in, so to speak. And so my first sabbatical leave uh, was in. Uh, Provence, 1982-83, uh, uh, my family was quite young, my kids were quite young, uh, ages four and seven, and it just, I had been teaching for 10 years, and uh, I wanted to go back to Paysage, Cezanne, Cezanne country, and sort of find my roots. And in the process, I didn't leave behind entirely some of the interests that I had. Uh, they, Certainly the, the kind of scratchy uh, charcoal pencil line, the hatching mark, which has a relationship to the tonality of the halftone dot. Um, but I just was interested in gathering objects around me uh, and exploring pretty much my past. I mean, my past before uh, graduate school. <clears throat> So I was, I was interested in the mark making, uh, in, the, in the objects, and you can see there's an, another example of refraction uh, in the drawing of the glass. Um, the pen mark and the image on the right is probably the most obvious. It, it's kind of a splayed, uh, open mark that I like, and, and a random direction marks, and they seem to have a life of their own. Family members. Uh, Katie was too young to sit still at that point, so she doesn't appear here. Uh, that's Megan, my older daughter, and uh, Lori Reading. And this object of Lori Reading. Uh, and it, it, there's a context in this image that, that I'd, I'd like to point out. Uh, first of all, I, you know, my my kids, my family, uh, they're all readers, and I think it's because Lori is. Uh, a really big reader. And so that, that's great because then there's somebody who's <laughs> sitting for a long time and, you know, <laughs> they, they, <laughs> but um, if you notice there are objects on the table, there's some reproductions of images that you can just barely see. Uh, they're deliberately drawn in this kind of vague manner. And this is sort of becoming a trait that you'll see throughout. Uh, the image on the left, the tilted image on the left, is a reproduction of a Matisse painting. And you can probably sense the, the mirror on the right. That's the uh, uh, great uh, painting of the lace maker. Uh, what I did, uh, I, I, I took that 
image of the Matisse, and rather than doing an homage directly from the piece, I set up a still life that was in the same format, you know, the diagonal shape, the lozenge shape, uh, and, and just drew from the objects in front of me. And here's a, a detail of uh, Lori reading. I like the concentration in the, uh, in the lace maker. Um, and when I, when I drew in the studio, I would usually have these li little uh, images that were kind of uh, you know, like Palestine. In fact, I do that throughout my, my studio now. I always have images, uh, cheap reproductions of images that are sort of reminders of what I'm interested in, where I'd like to go. Um, this is one of my favorite pieces from that series. Uh, the objects are, uh, I mean, not the actual objects, but the reproductions. There's just a sketch of mine on the left of the table. On the right is a, um, uh, a booklet on the Matisse Chapel in Vence. Some of you that have been to Provence have seen Matisse's chapel when he was convalescing. Uh, he, he did a beautiful chapel there. And the two drawings are actually some of the drawings that are also from that chapel. A piece called Constellation. Uh, <clears throat> the, I, I kind of like the fact that what you do when you set up a still life is you make this alignment of bodies. And it's almost like a, a, a stellar constellation in reverse. You're looking down instead of up. You can see that there, there's a Cezanne reproduction of one of my talismans. <coughs> <clears throat> uh, leaning up against the, uh, the wall there. And uh, that was another advantage of being in Cezanne country is being able to go to the studio in Aix-en-Provence, the Lelo studio, which at least, in, at least then, and it may still be true, I think is the best preserved studio. Uh, people always talk about Giverny, the Monet studio, but... Uh, that when, when we saw Giverny, the studio part, the house was beautiful, but the studio part was very commercialized. You know, it had posters and stuff. And it sort of junked it up. When you, walk, when you go into Le Louvre, you see the setup that was pretty much like when Cezanne was working there. And the objects around the room were things that you see in painting and <laughs> Uh, I love this little uh, incomplete uh, drawing sketch with barely touched with watercolor um, and, and some of the objects, the, uh, uh, the object on the left, uh, you see all the time in his work. And these pieces uh, are the last ones I'm going to show. It's still life in, from this, uh, what I call the French period, but uh, Notice the title, Facts and Things, that alludes to the uh, Wittgenstein quotes uh, that had, I had in the earlier work, uh, indirect quotes. Uh, you know, speaking of language, I, I like the title of that one because you always hear direct quotes. You know, this is a direct quote, so I like indirect quotes. And I'll talk a little bit about that later on. Of course, that here is a more typical Cezanne uh, that you, you know, you're more familiar with in terms of stylistic tendency, and it's this block building or brick building technique uh, known as facture uh, in French that, is, that builds up 
the objects and gives them their weight and their sense of, you know, I'm really there. Um, but it's also the Provencal landscape. You can see in the back the, uh, the pattern of the, of the landscape itself, the farm landscape itself that, that, that really does that. And these are a couple of images of mine that I'm ending up this period with. Um, <clears throat> where he, you know, it, it's a uh, it's a pigmented drawing which is rare for me, <laughs> mostly black and white, but uh, they're linear strokes that make up the patterns. And these both were views we had. We were in a, a hilltop village in the Vaucluse, so we were way high up, and on the roof of our apartment was this little roof terrace. Most of the most of the houses had roof terraces, and so I could go up there. And literally look, look straight down at the ground. Beautiful uh, perspective. You can see even the light one. Can you see the lines on the top left-hand one? Okay. Um, <clears throat> the, when I came back after the sabbatical, uh, I, I became fascinated with tables. And I guess I was always fascinated with tables. Remember the little balsa wood tables and, and the other structures that I made. But the uh, there's a for me, the table is the place where things happen. Uh, the table is a physical tabula rasa, you know, where you start, where things start. Uh, the blank page is on the table. And so it has its, this sort of symbolic quality for me. And uh, I like the open drawing images. Um, I was also interested uh, at this particular time, I had been earlier, but I uh, I think I developed an emphasized interest in uh, Richard Diebenkorn's work. Uh, Diebenkorn, the Bay, Bay Area figurative painter, uh, who started as an abstract artist and then developed into figure painting uh, at a time when figure painting was basically discouraged, uh, when abstract expressionism was kind of ruling the day. Uh, I also admire the fact that he did that, and lots of other artists, including de Kooning, uh, stayed with the figure throughout his career. Um, but I, I like the series that was right in front of, that, then he went back to abstraction, the Ocean, Ocean Park series. But I like this figure, uh, the backlit space. And at that particular time, when I came back from uh, France, I had a studio. I remember, I was no longer a post-studio artist, so I had a studio in the Front Street area that had south-facing light. Now, normally, that's not ideal. My current studio has north-facing light, which is more ideal, but I love the fact that, that light would just scream in, and it reminded me of uh, Diebenkorn's setting. Wonderful painting by Ernie Corlin, who's uh, did a terrific table series, probably more than one table series, of drawings and paintings. Uh, I was lucky enough to obtain this at an art scale uh, <clears throat> silent auction. And uh, I, I love the aspects of the translucency of the uh, tablecloth itself, where the light, again, the light is bathing in from backlit windows. And this. Uh, Wonderful still life. Every time I go to the modern, I like to find this Stephen Corn still life. It's uh, it's an odd composition. Um, it's top heavy. The back is what is large, and you see the the tiny little ink bottle 
way at the base of that painting on this long surface that's dropped down oblique point of view. Uh, but I like his constellation of objects that are personal things, notes, drawings, uh, drawing materials. And even the, this, these are examples of the Ocean Park series that uh, you may be familiar with. Uh, a painting on the left, which I think still strongly alludes to a table. The horizontal, the white plane is like, you know, light reflecting off in some of these earlier images, off the top plane table and the <clears throat> left vertical as a leg support for the table. And even the right hand drawing, and this is a stretch, but you know, your eye sees what it wants to see. Um, to me that alludes also to a table but to an isometric drawing. You know, uh, axiomatic drawings or isometric drawings uh, in architecture are where all your 90, 90 degree angles are illustrated as 45s, 45 degree angles. Anyway, then, humor me with that. <laughs> and uh, these, I, I think, uh, started to exhibit an exaggerated mark um, and uh, <clears throat> a little bit of uh, still the notion of, of the table as the prime source, but a little bit more involved in the composition. Uh, and I, I think that, that the notion of tableness has stayed with me through many periods. Um, these are uh, images from a later series. It's called The Threshold. We'll get to that in a minute. Um, <clears throat> the threshold image on the lower left, remember, goes all the way back to graduate school and the, the idea of windows and, and whether you're in or out that, that uh, passageway. Um, stays with these images. Wanderers and Other Poems is a series that I did with uh, poet Gary Pacerning uh, in 1985. It's the only time that I actually had prints published by someone else other than me. I've always been the printmaker making the prints, and uh, it, was a, it was a real treasure. Uh, to go to an atelier, Prasada Press was in Cincinnati, it was close by, but I would go down and stay with Janice Forber, who was the owner, and uh, I would, uh, the, the stones would be grain for me, oh, those <laughs> and uh, you know, they were just as fine as I wanted them, and I would draw, and the printer, whose name was Carl Hector, who was a, a graduate of Antioch University, he was just starting out. He was a lot younger than I was. He was a very good printer. Uh, the, the way I would draw prints through that series is almost just the weight of the pencil, no pressure down at all, onto the lithographic stone, and it would be etched and processed and printed. That, that's tricky to do. Um, <clears throat> so again, I'm glad I wasn't one of those prints. Carl Hecher has, has gone on to print uh, in the New York area. He prints a lot of the prints of Chuck Close. Um, so I'm going to look at some of these. And what I've done here, this is, I've enlarged the text so that you can read Gary's poem on the left and the image on the right. And I want to just give you a flavor of the, of the process. Um, like I say in the text here, it's more Indigrant quotes. 
Uh, I'm not trying to illustrate the poem. I'm just trying to pick out the various images. And any, uh, I was going to say single line, but any stanza of poetry has so many images that you, you just have to wrestle with it and draw out of it what you can. But you can see down here that I, I, I just like the, <clears throat> some of the texts and you know, breathing deeply uh, relates back to the uh, Spice Poem uh, text, the Harold Bloom text. Uh, so that's, that's pretty much what my process of thinking and drawing is. Again, there's a table, okay, and the line, the line segments are very abbreviated and they kind of go all over the place. And in one of my favorite poems and prints from this series, uh, the whole book is in the exhibition, but only four pages are framed and displayed. I hope you get a chance to look at it. I was interested in the, uh, you know, finding our way slowly, and words forming around thoughts under a darkening sky. And that, to me, that echoed the process of creation, that, you know, what, what Gary says is the seeds that we plant. Uh, and I, my interpretation of the hope lies in the balance of goodness and promise, uh, and that we may have uh, to rely on a little bit of magic in finding our way. The piece called Studio, which was done right after this, and it has the same kind of network of lines uh, that is trying to articulate in a very, very uh, vague but uh, I think uh, a sense of presence. You know, I, I, I'm trying to draw the atmosphere in the room as well as the objects in the room. Uh, here are two drawings by uh, <clears throat> Alberto Giacometti, another uh, artist that you're probably very familiar with his sculpture. Again, I really love his drawings because I think he does that. I think he captures the, the ambiance and, and even the atmosphere of the space and weds the figure into that space. <clears throat> a piece called Catwalk. It was more pure abstraction, uh, even though I tend to see uh, apertures and walls, I mean apertures like doors and windows and architectural features, but it's basically this line doodling across the page, uh, just like the text in the earlier book. The Threshold series began when I ended that four-year term that Penny referred to uh, of chairing the department. I had all this uh, energy bottled up. I, you know, Glenn was smart enough when he took over the chair to talk to Chuck Taylor and say, "Well, I, you know, I need to be. I need to have a studio, not an office. I need to have a studio where I'm working." I wasn't that clever, Glenn. Uh, so I had all this bottled up. Imagery that I hadn't had a chance to get out. And I went through a series in just a period of one or two years of uh, these references or allusions to uh, architecture, studio, table, but in a very open and abstract way. And in fact, one of those pieces, threshold number two, the small piece, was a very small work that is now in my brother's collection. Uh, that's a very yellowed out slide. The, the color is more like this. But you see what I did? I borrowed that piece back for the DVAC show 
looking both ways, which was really a precursor to this show. Uh, I was doing the same thing, it's just not as extensive uh, as this particular show. But I, I like working from drawing, drawing from drawing. Uh, I, I remember Diane Fitch teaching classes where that was the title of the class, Drawing from Drawing. And here's another example, uh, threshold number seven, and then 2008, uh, drawing from that same drawing. Again, using the term of window, though I can still see a table in there as well. <clears throat> uh, Kim Vito was on leave in the year 2000, and so I taught an, et taught an etching class. I normally teach uh, lithography and screen printing here. Um, but in most of the classes I, I taught, if I had a direction that I was suggesting or uh, an assignment, so to speak, I would actually do the work. And I remember doing a series of prints. We, we, were, we were doing uh, states. Uh, states and prints is where you have a plate, you draw a plate, you print it, and then you draw some more and you print it, and you evolve to an image, and then you can print an edition of that, and then you continue to do that, as Picasso did, uh, most notably in the Bull series, 1947, uh, same plate, same vehicle, same stone in Picasso's case, but you just re-etch it and keep carve into it, either take away or add to it. And that's what we're doing. These are two examples of uh, states <clears throat> from, that, from that time. Uh, 1989, uh, the image on the left is an early Jennifer Rosengarten. Some of you may know her work. She's, uh, like many of the students that I've had in the past, they've gone on to become art professionals and teachers themselves. And uh, during this period, I think she was a senior at that, at that point, um, her work was very influential to me. Um, she was working abstractly. abstractly. Uh, this piece on the left, I think, alludes to the landscape. Whereas my threshold pieces on the right allude more to interior space, but uh, the orchestration of the imagery and uh, the palette is a little bit under her influence. These two images, uh, these next two images are uh, images of de Kooning, again, well known as an abstract expressionist, but remember when he did that whole women series, you know, he, he was devoutly attached to the figure and brought the figure into uh, abstract expressionist language. Um, these next pieces are pieces that do that with uh, the landscape as a reference or as an allusion. Uh, so when I say figurative, I mean the idea of objective world out there that you're bringing into the painting. Uh, this piece is titled Pastorelle. Unfortunately, it's in a private collection, so I've only seen it in reproduction. But I never go to Holland uh, to the Stedelijk in Amsterdam without seeing uh, Rosie Finger Dawn at Last Point, uh, another de Kooning that alludes very directly, I think, to the landscape there. There being Springs, Long Island. <clears throat> and at the end of this series, I was also very influenced by uh, Lady Zarapla. Now, 
Uh, if you've been watching public television of late, you've probably seen the London performances of the 25th anniversary of, of uh, Les Mis. Uh, just a great musical. But what I loved about it was the, the staging of it. You know, the, the, the ground plane turns so that the figures can move and remain stationary on stage. Fantastic idea. And the barricade. You remember the barricade? These great swinging, uh, large-scale sculptural pieces come together and form the barricade on the stage. And I was, I was just really fascinated by that. And the print, the 1990 print, is titled Barricade. And you know, with all these images, of course, there's several in the series that play out uh, over time. Uh, but that's one iteration. And then stage came from uh, this barricade notion in uh, Three minutes. Okay, we're getting we're getting close to the end. I realize I'm over 45 minutes. <laughs> in the in the 1990s, the decade of the 90s, I I, I became involved very directly with the woods, uh, starting in areas of woods that were in little pockets, little parks close to where I live. Uh, <clears throat> Elizabeth Gardens on the left and uh, Friendship Park on the right. And there's uh, this gorgeous drawing of Leonardo's. Uh, the, I, I don't know how well you can see the image, but if you've ever seen the image, uh, the actual image, uh, which I was lucky to do, they had a, a show of the Windsor Collection at the Met uh, back in this time. And uh, it's just a gorgeous drawing. Uh, the red chalk drawing, you might be able to see in this detail where I'm just focusing on the, on the tree portion. I don't know exactly how he does it, but there are these horizontal lines that articulate the tree form and particularly the, the, the uh, leaves on the tree. So you, when you look at this drawing, at least when you look at it in real life, you, you sense this flickering of leaves. And... Uh, he was not young at the time that he did this. I don't know, don't know how he captured that. Uh, and then some more Cezannes. Uh, I, I, I just like the, uh, the loose use of graphite and watercolor in his drawings. And uh, I wanted to focus on that. The dépouillet. Uh, in French, that, that word means skinned, you know, skinned like an animal. And it's a very graphic word that talks about the natural erosion. You know, when you, when you see trees down by a stream, obviously the water is eroding around the root structure of those trees, and you get these fantastic angles, uh, the slanting out of these trees. And they stay for a long time. Uh, going back to the, the large trees painting, I have a dépouillet <laughs> uh, uh, detail down here in the lower right-hand corner that shows not only this guy comes out and then goes straight up, but this one that suffered the consequences <laughs> of leaving too far over. But I like the angles that are created in these woods scenes, and basically the imagery here, I'm going to go fairly fast, uh, uh, is a, another manifestation of my interest in lines, uh, making images through lines. Uh, gorgeous little print by Ray Moss, the you here, no Ray. Uh, 
And what I, what I liked about this image, uh, it's the image of, at the golf course, but it's really what I, it's an urban setting. And we've all seen pollarded trees, you know, what they, they, they sometimes do that to make the growth denser. But they really look ridiculous when you, when you do that. You've got this huge trunk and this great big, and then tiny little things coming out that look like hair growing out of the thing. So that personification is really easy when you're working in nature. <clears throat> and I, I just love these pen and ink drawings by Van Gogh. Uh, the one on the left, I just love the energy of the movement of all those uh, staccato limbs against the evenness of the horizon line. It's close to center, a little bit low of center, and then that church uh, sitting in the background. But I, I included this, you know how Van Gogh would always write to his brother Theo, and he describes what he was trying to do. And what he says about the polarded uh, trees resembling a procession of men from the Holmes house, uh, you can start. You can look at that and see this kind of uh, uh, figurative element in the tree. And one of my favorite Van Gogh drawings of, of all times. Um, you're seeing a kind of washed-out version, uh, but again, it's a Vigouier situation. Uh, lots of very tender marks, glazing, transparency, translucency, and yet. All those things that I just said are very delicate against a very strong tree form. And here's what he says to his brother uh, about these two drawings. He treats these two drawings almost as twins or as one idea. And he's talking about the, the, the sentiments in both. Um, give you a little chance to, to read that. But, Essentially, articulating the battle of life, the, hum the human condition. And I, I just love that sentiment uh, expressed to his brother. Friendship Park, uh, again, sort of the result of erosion, these fallen trees. Anytime you have a wooded landscape and running water, you're going to have fallen trees. So the bridge motif uh, suggests itself. And there is a version done right here. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about that later. Um, and a Mondrian tree, uh, looking again at the winter gray and the study for winter gray. Um, when I'm working on any large scale work, not that these are large scale, but uh, when I'm working on large scale work, uh, obviously I don't go out there with a six by ten foot canvas. I don't go out in the woods. I go out with very small study <coughs> tablets and uh, drawing tablets and painting on cardboard and things like that. But um, I, I like this The Gray Tree um, by Piet Mondrian. There are some studies on the left. And this is a rather large. This is from the Wright State Collection. Uh, Bar for this exhibition, so you can see it. I think early summer of 1991, I was working on that painting in, in uh, I believe it was Hogstream Friendship Park, and Penny came walking through the woods. I think you were with your family, <laughs> and she uh, 
And then I would go back and do a version in the winter of the exact same scene. I kind of like the arching uh, growth of those trees. It reminded me of Cezanne's bathers. And there's some studies up there. Started this series in 1990, a trip to Colorado. Did several drawings while I was out there, and then various locations throughout. These are images, uh, got about 10 images that I'll go through fairly quickly. I won't say too much about them, but they're all done here at Wright State. That's a, a lithograph, and that's a hand-tinted version of one of the proofs. The winter landscape was really interesting to me. And I think it was this drawing, uh, when I was doing sketches for this drawing, I, I couldn't believe the blue. I, I, I doubted myself. And I, so I had this sketchbook, and I actually had to, I had to take the page and get down to a shadow that's proof it. No, I wasn't inventing it. It's a commission by uh, Jim and Betsy Hughes, both of them poets. Jim will be reading this afternoon. Uh, and it's in an area of the woods that he would sometimes bring his classes to. Uh, so I, you know, this is the best kind of commission, an open commission. Um, no, nothing, he didn't think that at all what he, what he wanted to do, he just wanted to have a, a, an image. It's a very, fairly large scale, it was in the exhibition at DMAC, uh, looking both ways, and uh, otherwise it would have been in this exhibition too. Very subtle hint of color amidst the grays. He's called Tangle. Tangle and the campus trees are, were actually done by working on lithographic transfer paper. One thing I didn't like about, I love lithography, it's my favorite print media, but of course in any press media your image is reversed. And it would drive me crazy because if I would go out with the print to try to rework things, I, I couldn't do it. You know, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't flip the image. So I would work on a transfer paper, which, which is a fairly common uh, technique. And, and, and so then I'd flip it to the stone, and then the image on the stone would be reversed and the print would be correct. And this is a, we looked at it earlier, study for a stream. Um, this study was done in preparation for the stream early spring, which was a commission from the late Harley Flack, Harley and Mignon Flack. Uh, had commissioned me. He really, when he came here, it was when I was just starting the Wood series. And uh, I, you know, he was, I always liked him because he liked my work. But there was a, a piece that got sold out of his home uh, because he had bought it, so he commissioned this piece. And the sad part of the story is the day I delivered it, it was a large painting, six by ten feet was the day that his uh, diagnosis of uh, pancreatic cancer was announced. And he didn't survive that year. I remember writing him a note saying, you know, Matisse always used to, if someone was in the hospital, he'd bring a painting and he'd hang it on the wall to just, just to help him get better. And I, I wrote him a, a note alluding to that. Sorry that it didn't work. Edgefall is is from the campus of the very first image, Winter Light, that started this series of Wright State images, and of course there are lots more, uh, was inside that. This is at the edge of the parking lot. It's the title. 
the last series is uh, working from the home and uh, some, some of the figurative work that I've been working on lately. Sparse marks again. You get the idea that Reticence is my middle name. <laughs> uh, I think that I have both of these together because I think drawing is always in, involved with both perception and invention. And they, the two work hand in glove. They really have to, or, or you don't get anywhere. Um, and so the piece on the left is from observation. The piece on the right is just out of my head. Um, and it, that was part of a, a series of uh, prints that were done for the Dayton Kyoto Exchange. I now remember the Dayton Printmakers Co-op. And uh, we've had about six annual international exchanges with Kyoto, Japan, which happened to involve our travel there. And here, here's sort of just the, uh, you know, in the back of my mind, where I'd like to be going. I'd like to uh, sort of follow this progression of, like Mondrian himself did, from, from uh, figuration to abstraction. Bridge motif again, seen in abstract. And uh, again, a hand tinted version. So, an image that I do in 1989 on the left, in 2007, I hand tinted the entire edition. Uh, again, my present past uh, changing all the time. Uh, Gretchen Campbell's uh, ink drawing is uh, in reproduction form, is in my studio. I, I love the uh, ink mark there. And Neil Anderson was my first painting instructor at Bucknell University. Uh, he just retired after a 40-year teaching career. And uh, his images still, uh, I'm still mindful of his images. Uh, side views, my backyard. Uh, recently joined a figure group it includes Ernie Corlin and Ray Must and uh, several others, uh, faculty connected to Wright State, past and present. And, uh, you know, we, we pay for the model. And I wasn't going to include any figurative drawings, but I, I'm sort of glad I did. And I, I kind of like these two, especially. It was a night where uh, the, the, the overall composition just fell in place. Uh, nicely for me, I like the illusion of the studio, the very faint marks around the figure. Uh, the model is a singer, <laughs> hence the title, and uh, it's uh, my homage to uh, Baltus. And then I had enough time to draw the head, because I'm really interested in that exposed neck and the head. Uh, Leslie Lenro, her, her current name is Leslie Lenro Schrag was a student back in the mid-80s and had this great curly hair, couldn't resist. And the things I was interested in the model as, uh, or, the, or uh, the female model, the woman, as uh, sort of a symbol of strength. Uh, the model just happened to be standing on this cast head, uh, it's the title conquer. And then this lovely woman here has a beautiful tattoo on her arm. And uh, I'm just going to symbolize that with this uh, progression from the gorgeous uh, Edwin Dickinson drawing on the left 
and uh, Richard Tevencorn, uh, variations on the figure. You can see a lot of Matisse in that manipulation. Uh, I've always liked the uh, uh, pedimenti, the movement and the changing going on in his work. And then I'm very, I'm, I'm drawing, I'm very fond of, uh, of de Kooning's uh, two women. Uh, there's something about Greeks. These two sisters, uh, Greek sisters, they, they just induce the classical every time you, you draw, at least every time I would draw them. Okay, speaking of Greek, we're at the end. Uh, the last series I did is this, uh, I mentioned earlier, Four Poets on Campus. Um, and the process for this actually started uh, a decade ago. Uh, my last sabbatical here was in the year 2000, and there were lots of things that I wanted to do in that sabbatical. But, and one of them was to create a series of images that, that four poets on campus would react to, one of them being Gary. Uh, and the, uh, <clears throat> the, the notion of doing this is, is called ekphrasis. I mean, we have a little definition of the word up there. Uh, ekphrasis actually goes both ways. And it goes back to Plato, um, where he would describe forms. Um, so it's not just art, but it's primarily this notion of art uh, being sort of fleshed out uh, or augmented by another work of art reflecting on it. With Gary, I was looking at his poems and making images. In this case, it's images made of right state that the poems react to. And of course, this example, uh, and probably the best known example, uh, Keats's uh, Ode on a Grecian Urn, the famous ending. <clears throat> so the, the images you're going to see is, uh, the first one is titled Discovery, and it's, it's Millet Hall, seen vaguely through the woods. And what I wanted to conjure up was this evolving university, uh, geometric structures of buildings kind of making their way through the woods. The poem, uh, Gary really wanted this poem uh, because it's office in Millet. When you, when you read the poem, you hear it spoken in Millet poems through the decades. This is a piece called Emergence that David Garrison uh, wrote a beautiful poem, The Nature of a University. Those first two were lithographs, these are screen prints, discernment. Uh, and the poem is Jim's Dialectic of Discernment. And finally, Dialogue, uh, the title Dialogue. Actually, all the titles involve things that you do in an educational institution. And <clears throat> this, uh, the, I like the, the two trees there. They're kind of paired up and have a dialogue. And a beautiful poem by David Peterman, uh, Roots. It opens with a biblical quote. Um, so I'm sorry I went over uh, 45 minutes by a lot. <laughs>